3 through 8. This is found on page 948 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure, measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in portion with our faith. If service, in serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Casey. It's been such a joy to have Casey on our staff team, and if you hadn't had a chance to meet her yet, uh, say hi to her. She's started recently, and she's been such a gift to our team. Already. Well, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. We're so glad that you're here with us today, especially if this is your first time uh, being with us at Christ Community, or maybe this is your first time back uh, since uh, we, you know, kind of suspended services so long ago. So if this is your first time back or your first time here, we're so glad that you're here with us in person. Um, we also have people gathered with us online this morning across our city and across our campuses, and so um, we're united together uh, with them as we uh, celebrate and work worship here together this morning. Well, as we take a look at this passage in Romans chapter 12, I want to begin by praying and asking that the Holy Spirit would be at work uh, applying and giving us insight into this text this morning together. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have inspired uh, your word, that you've given us uh, this gift, and that you uh, continue to speak to us uh, afresh through it um, by the power of your Spirit. And so we pray now um, that that would happen and that uh, we would uh, be changed. That's what this whole series is about, that you would work to transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, one of my favorite things about Christ Community as a church, one of my favorite things that we do is our pastoral residency program. And I say that not just as a, uh, as a staff member who's excited about the things that we do, but I was uh, a part of that pastoral residency program. That's how I began my work as a pastor. So I actually got to go through that program um, all the way back 12 years ago, 2008. I graduated from uh, seminary and I came to Kansas City. I had never been a pastor in any kind of full-time way before. I'd helped out at a few things, but this was my first real job as a pastor in the residency. And if you would have asked me 12 years ago when I started at Christ Community, uh, fresh out of school in this residency program, you know, Bill, do you have a lot to learn about being a pastor? I would have said, of course, I have so much to learn. I, I mean, there's so much I don't know and that I need to learn. But I think at that point, if you uh, would have asked me, you know, but do you have sort of basic human interaction skills down? Yeah, I mean, I know, how to, I know how to sit in a meeting, I know how to interact with people, uh, I know how to be a good participant in, in a meeting or in a social group, and would have said, yeah, I've, I've got that down. But, 
maybe you see where this is going. <laughs> Six months into my pastoral residency program, there was kind of the first formal evaluation part, uh, point. And so uh, two of our senior pastors, they took me out to Starbucks and they bought me a cup of coffee. And this is going to kind of be the moment where just like, hey, here's what you're doing well. Here's where you can grow. And I remember just being so nervous. I really wanted to, to do well in this program and to be a good pastor. And um, so, you know, we're sitting there at the table. I've got my cup of coffee and, you know, start encouraging me and what I'm doing well. And, you know, you're, you know, your preaching is really coming along and you're growing in that. And that's great. And wow, you're really good at doing research and all that kind of thing. And um, so I was, I was encouraged and felt good. And then, you know, we sort of turned the corner as happens in those kinds of conversations where now it's time for the areas for growth. And I remember my palms getting a little bit sweaty. What were they going to say? You know, what did I need to grow in as a pastor? And if you had asked me uh, that morning, you know, Bill, write down, you know, everything that you could think of that they might say, this is what you need to, to grow in. Here's where you need areas of improvement. Just take out a piece of paper and start writing. I could have written all day and, and never come up with the two things that they shared with me that afternoon at Starbucks. And it was kind of the simplicity of it that, and just, that was even shocking to me. Because here's the thing. The two things that they mentioned were, one... Bill, we, we've noticed that in meetings, you have a habit when, when you're, we're all sitting around a conference table together, um, you know, or a big, you know, remember we used to like sit around tables together in rooms? Uh, anyway, we used to do that. And, and there's, you have a habit, we've noticed, if you tend to lean forward on your elbows like this, and the people who are kind of sitting on either side of you, they can't see very well anymore because you're just totally oblivious. You're just there, you know, you're tuned in, you're blocking the people out around you. That's one thing. And also, they said, we, we've also noticed that you, you tend to sort of tune out uh, once you feel like, okay, I've gotten what I need from the meeting, or I kind of understand what's going on. You sort of give this, this, this vibe or what your body language of, okay, like, I'm kind of done with this, with this conversation. <laughs> I was like, I was thinking, you know, that you need to work on your, your, your public prayer skills or, you know, your, your pastoral. And it's like, no, like, you actually just need to learn how to, like, sit in a meeting well with other, pe- with other human beings. That was after six months of observing me. Those are, the, those are the two things. They said, this is what we really feel like Bill needs to work on. And I almost couldn't believe it, but the next day, I'm, here I am sitting in a meeting, and I feel myself starting to lean forward. I was like, oh, I guess I do do that. And it's blind spots, and that's the nature of blind spots, right? You, you don't see them. You can't look at them ahead of time because you don't, you don't know them. And these are just like human-level kind of interaction 101 kind of things. And I, I know even today that those kind of basic interactions probably I still need growth in. I probably see that more now than, than ever, 12 years on. But I'm sure I'm not alone in having had a moment like this in my life. I'm sure all of us, you've had a moment where a coach or a teacher or a boss or a parent or a spouse has pointed out something to you that you just were totally oblivious of. You shouldn't see yourself clearly. And, and here's the thing, friends, this morning, if you write down only one thing, if you only take one thing away from this message this morning, I hope it's this, that you can't change what you can't or won't see. That you can't change what you can't or won't see. Change requires a community of people who will help us see ourselves more clearly, who will help us grow, and nothing will shut that down more quickly than what Paul calls here in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, thinking too highly of yourself. 
thinking too highly of yourself. This is our, our fourth week here, our fourth week in a, in a five-week series on Romans chapter 12 that we're calling We Can Change. And we've been looking here at how God works through His body, through His Word, through what He's doing, through the gospel to change us as people. And what we've been looking at in this series is that this kind of old formula that does not work runs like this, that more information plus more willpower equals change. That does not equal lasting change. And what we've been trying to discover is that what really leads to lasting change is being loved and finding a place of belonging. Being loved and belonging are the key to lasting change and transformation. In messages two and three, Pastor Taylor walked us through how change happens, where it happens. Um, change happens as we present our bodies as living sacrifices in a community of believers. That's what we looked at last week. These, all these spiritual gifts that you heard read, that, that each one of us who is empowered by the Spirit has something to give, to share to another, that we ought to come to community group, to our relationships, to church, expecting that others have something that we need to receive from, and also that we have something to give. But this morning we want to look at what prevents change. What causes us to, to stall out? What gets us stuck in this change process? And then next week, the final message in the series, we're going to try to kind of put all the pieces together and say, okay, how do we, we change together in community? But before we get there, we want to look at what causes change to stall, what prevents change. That's what this message is all about. And as we do that, we're going to zero in on verse 3 in Romans chapter 12 here and just really unpack verse 3. And this is where Paul both shows us the disease that prevents change as well as the, the cure that allows us to continue to move forward. So the disease and the cure. So first of all, what is the disease? Well, look again at verses 1 and 2 in Romans chapter 12. We've been spending a lot of time on those, those first two verses of the chapter because they're so uh, foundational for everything that, that Paul is, is doing. He's applying kind of the gospel to life now after he's been unpacking this grand story of what God has been doing from the beginning to bring people back to himself, to restore relationship. All that's Romans chapter 1 through 11 and then 12. He's starting to really say, okay, how does this work itself out in this community? And he writes this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God. We spent a lot of time looking at that word mercies. It's the, you know, this idea of God's tender, compassionate, this rachamim love that he has for us. The mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And again, we spent quite a bit of time unpacking that sometimes, sometimes we think mind, we think kind of cognitive processes, our, our left brain, logical thinking, but our brains are left and right. It's our imaginations, it's our, our attachments, all of it. It's our whole brain, left and right together, the renewal of our minds comprehensively. You'd be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may test but testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's how Paul starts this off. But then you get into uh, what he says now in verse 3, where he outlines this is both the sort of the disease and the cure are here. Listen to verse 3. He says then, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, and this is key here, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. 
So the disease, what is the disease? What is the, the weed that is growing sort of in the garden of our lives that is going to choke out the change that God is working to bring about? And it's this idea of thinking too highly of ourselves. And just like Paul stated back in verse 2, the renewal of our minds, this, the mind that is securely attached to our Creator, bathed in these mercies, this love of God, this tender love, this motherly love of God. So here in verse 3, our minds, our thinking, are still on center stage in verse 3. In fact, one sort of Romans expert scholar on the book of Romans, he tries to bring out uh, just how central this thinking language still is in verse 3. And he, he gives a kind of a, a literal translation. It's awkward English, but it's, it really brings out the prominence of this language of thinking. So listen, this is verse 3 in a very literal translation. He says, For I say through the grace that was given to me, to every person among you, that you not think beyond what it is necessary to think, but you think with sober thinking as God has measured to each a measure of faith. Bringing out all the thinking vocabulary in that verse. You cannot change what you can't see, or what your too high a view of yourself prevents you from seeing. And again, language scholars point out essentially what Paul is saying here is don't get a big head about yourself. Don't think too highly. Don't, don't think you're all that great all the time, or you're going to miss things. Because again, even just think about this in life, right? Who are the people who inevitably wreck sports teams? Right? It's those who are arrogant, those who have a big head, those who think they arrived, those who think they don't need any good coaching anymore, that they've, they've got it down, who think that they don't need anyone else, they don't need the team. And again, part of Pastor Taylor's message last week was we need a team to change. We need a community of people who are gifted by the Spirit to change. But we won't be able to receive those gifts we won't be able to receive what others have to offer to us, gifted by the Spirit, if we think too highly of ourselves. There's nothing that's going to close us off from that life-changing community empowered by the Spirit more quickly than thinking too highly of ourselves. Now, of course, none of this is, is natural to us in this, in this state that we are in as, as fallen sinful human beings. None of us enjoys knowing that we have blind spots. We certainly don't enjoy having them pointed out. I mean, back 12 years ago, sitting in that Starbucks, I certainly didn't enjoy that moment of, of being, <laughs> said, hey, actually, you have these really awkward habits in meetings that you need to change. But we need those moments. And recently I read an article where the author used his experience of, of cancer as, a, as a, just a great metaphor for denial and its power in our lives when we're not willing to see, when we do think too highly, when we're, we aren't really to see the facts in our lives. And the way he puts it is so powerful. He describes how he didn't fit any of the risk categories. It was colon cancer that he had. That he didn't fit any risk categories for that. He was young. It's not typically something that affects younger people. He had no family history. He had no lifestyle risks. But he continued to have these unexplained symptoms, and he just kept dismissing them, dismissing them until he couldn't. And this is what he writes. He explains... False hope was my new normal until it wasn't. When they scanned my body, the doctors found the cancer had spread. I had stage four colon cancer, and I had two choices, either denial and death or recognition and life. Denial and death or recognition and life. It's really powerful language, isn't it? I mean, it just reminds me a while back, 
this is all, you know, this is last year, almost, yeah, a little over a year ago, back when I was, I was 37 at the time, a little older now, 38, but I, you know, I was trying a new workout program, and I really hurt my back. I mean, I thought, I think, basically, I thought too highly of my 37-year-old body, and, uh, and pushed myself, and, and ended up for, you know, uh, weeks of physical therapy to get my back figured out. I was having these agonizing back spasms, Right? But in that moment of, of having those, that back pain, I, I had to either choose you know, recognition and life, this is a problem, I need to go to a doctor and get some help, or denial and just continued agony in that moment. When we come to that moment, when we realize that perhaps we've thought too highly of ourselves, when we come to the moment when we begin to get an inkling that, that maybe we are a bit like the person the book of Proverbs describes in chapter 26, verse 12, is do you see a person who is wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. We start to see, well, maybe that's me. Maybe that's been me. We have two choices. We have the choice of of denial and death to continue to push that away or recognition in life. But unfortunately, it is more easy, easier now than ever to remain in denial because of what philosophers, what cultural critics call uh, individualism or an expressive or an excessive individualism. So there's, a, there's a certain goodness, right, to, to a, a kind of individualism that recognizes each individual human as having worth and value and dignity and, and a way to contribute. And uh, there's this deep sense of, of, you know, God loving us, not as just as a, as a blob of humanity, but as He loves you is an individual. So there's, a, there's a healthy individualism, but in our culture, the goodness of that has been distorted into an excessive or an expressive individualism that says, ultimately, meaning is found inside myself, that where I find who I am most truly is by looking inside and then giving expression to what I discover, what I find there. That's that expressive or kind of this excessive individualism. And, but what happens in that is if I'm looking inside to discover who I am, then I ultimately am cutting myself off oftentimes from those who would be able to help me see blind spots, to be able to see and help me grow. John Tyson, who's an incredibly thoughtful pastor in New York City, uh, points out what this does to us. I think he's right on here. He says this, many communities are now preference-based. And he actually says this, the more affluent you are, the more you can personalize your world with flavors, colors, finishes, services tailored to you. And and the result is, he says, is that this actually becomes expected so that we unconsciously carry those expectations into relationships. We, We bring that expectation of customization and preference into our, our relationships, our communities. And so the result of this is that we've been so shaped by those forces that we end up simply just unfollowing those on social media whose points we don't like. We end up walking away from churches when we, you know, hear something that we don't like or is offensive to us or uh, is confusing rather than pressing in or, or you know, talking with a leadership or whatever it might be. We just, we walk away. Uh, same thing happens in, in community groups and relationships. And all of that puts us at a deeper risk of isolation, that it keeps us trapped in thinking too highly of, our, of ourselves because we don't have people who are, who are different from us who can, in grace and love, point out those things where we need to grow. Again, if, if we don't have that, if we think whether consciously or just functionally, that we've arrived, that we don't need to grow, then we won't change. 
If you, if you think you're already awesome at piano, you're not going to get any better. If you think you're already amazing at basketball, your coach can't help you. If you think the problem in your marriage or with your coworkers is that it's always the other person's fault, then you're never going to grow. And, and, and kids, if you think in your relationships with your, with your siblings or with your parents that you're always blaming, that it's always their fault, that it's always someone else's fault, you're never going to be happy. And you're never going to grow into the kind of person who really deeply enjoys life and is able to enjoy others. So that's the problem. That's the disease. What's, what's the cure? And how do we take the path of recognition in life rather than the one of denial and death? Well, that's what Paul also gets to in the second half of verse 3. So look back at verse 3. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, then he gives us this disease, not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but then this, but to think with sober judgment, that's key, and then according to the measure of faith God has assigned. So this is the cure, this idea of sober judgment, of sound thinking, of right thinking, according to the measure of faith. And so this is, this is literally this, the thinking of yourself with sober thinking. That's, that's that language of thinking is so kind of just rooted here. But it's not sober thinking in general, but sober thinking in line with what Paul calls here the measure of faith. That's a kind of a tricky little phrase. What is this measure of faith that Paul uses here? And it's not a phrase that's used very often. Paul doesn't use it very often. And there's kind of been two main ways that Christians throughout the history of trying to read and understand this, this letter that Paul wrote to the book of Romans. What does he mean by measure of faith here? One is that it kind of sets up and is connected to the spiritual gifts that are listed in verses 4 through 7 that, you know, this is kind of setting up that conversation, measure of faith in terms of, you know, these various gifts that Paul lists. Um, but a lot of scholars who study Romans they, they take that view. Others would say, well, we're not, it, Paul actually doesn't use faith in that kind of way. He hasn't used it that way in, in Romans to talk about gifts. And um, so there's a second kind of understanding of this, and that I, I think this is the best way to read measure of faith in this, is that the measure of faith is the idea of this, the faith that we have received, this, this um, gift of faith that we've received that all Christians have. That this is the good news of the gospel. The measure of faith is the good news, the standard of the gospel. It's the common faith we share with a community of believers that lets us see ourselves and one another rightly. So, I mean, really, Paul's, what is kind of the, you know, that strong black cup of coffee that sobers up arrogant, isolated Christians. Well, it's not shame. It's not a wagging finger saying, you need to be less isolated. You need to be less arrogant. No, it's the good news of the gospel, right? <laughs> this, this measure of faith, the measure of the gospel that says we are loved and that we need forgiveness and that that forgiveness is available. That's the good news. Because this is what the gospel does. It constantly is reminding us that, yes, we need forgiveness, that Jesus had to come to die for us. And, and because of that, we can never think too highly of ourselves, right? We can never become arrogant because when we really look at what the message of the gospel is, that Jesus, the very Son of God, had to come and die on a cross and rise again from the dead to, to fix what is wrong with us, that constantly is undercutting the idea that we might think too highly of ourselves. We can't think too highly of ourselves. But we also don't slide into just kind of hatred and self-loathing and, and shame because how did Paul start off Romans chapter 12, 
Verse 1, I urge you by the mercies, by the rakamim, this tender mercy, love of God. He loved you so much. He went after you. He sought you out. He went looking for you. He treats you and loves you like a mother loves her nursing child. That's how he loves you. So you, you, can't, you can't slide into despair. You are so loved. So he looks at us with steady love and forgiveness and mercy, longing to rescue us, longing to see us change. You see, because of what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, and because of he's ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, because of that, there is nothing in your story, there's nothing in your life that can embarrass Jesus. There's nothing that can make him walk away from you. There's nothing that will ever make him turn his back on you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not embarrassed by you. He's dealt with all of that on the cross. And he's invited, he's adopted you into his family. He's placed you in a local church community that is there not to condemn you, but to help you to grow and to change and become the kind of people who love one another, whose reaction, first reaction to those who are enemies is one of love. I think that's one of the the highest measures of, of maturity and discipleship, that our first reaction to those who are enemies is to love them. Let me bring this into just everyday life for a minute with this idea of enemies, because like, well, maybe I have enemies out there somewhere, people who don't like me, people who are, but like, just think about this. An enemy is anyone who is not on your side. You start thinking about enemy language, it's someone who's not on your side, who feels like in this moment, right now, in this conversation, in this meeting at work, in this conversation with my spouse or with my child or with my coworker or with my boss, that that person feels like they are not with me, they are not on my side. Is your first reaction to people who are not on your side, to enemies, to love them? As Jesus said? Or is it something else? Because regularly we find ourselves in moments where we have someone who feels like they are not on my side, they are not with me, we're not together, they're not on my side. <laughs> might be, again, it might be your parents. Don't feel like you're on your side. Parents, it might be like your kids are not on your side, your spouse, a neighbor, coworker. How do we respond to those who are enemies? Is it with the measure of love, the, the kind of love that Jesus had for us? We need a people around us with the diversity of gifts, all the gifts that Paul goes on to list that that Pastor Taylor looked at last week in verses four through seven. We need a people with that diversity of gifts to point out where we're thinking of ourselves too highly, to remind us of the love and mercies of Jesus in the gospel, to show us, to model for us how it is like us to act as followers of Jesus who love our enemies reflexively. Friends, to think more highly of yourself than you ought is denial and death. To think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith, the good news of the gospel is recognition and life. 